Well, good morning. Uh, glad to be here this morning. We do end our series on 1 Corinthians. We've been in for several weeks. So this week we um, end the book. And um, the two burning questions really for anyone in school, you remember these questions. One is, is the final comprehensive, right? And uh, is there going to be a review? <laughs> the, the final is comprehensive. We're going to cover the whole book today. And the, re- the, uh, the review, there's going to be a review of the whole book. And the, the final is going to be what it is every week. We call it, so what? So the final for us is going to be, how do we walk out Paul's words through the Holy Spirit in this uh, book of, of 1 Corinthians? So uh, one thing we're going to see as we go through the book, it's easy to kind of look at it just uh, s- simply little uh, parts that kind of go together. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of run the string through the pearls today. If if Sheila asked me, you know, I would really like uh, some pearls, you know, to go, to, to go with my outfits. If I said, hey, okay, honey, just hold out your hands, and, and I dumped a bunch of pearls in her hands, she would argue, yeah, my, my husband gave me pearls, right? It would be separate things. But if you run a string through those, that's what they're supposed to look like. So today, we're going to run the string through all these pearls we've been looking at for, for weeks and weeks now through the the book. And we're going to see that Paul is not doing like a Facebook rant. Paul's not like, and another thing, and another thing. You know, he, there's something that the Holy Spirit has put together, together to show us as the church uh, what this life looks like. Kevin said it beautifully, and we'll talk a whole lot about that today, about love, how we love one another in the body. And you notice the, the title is called A Flyover. We were coming back from New York City about a month ago in the plane, and we, um, there were some young ladies behind us who talked and talked and talked all through the flight. But as we broke through the clouds coming into Nashville, they, uh, they were very clearly not from Tennessee, very clearly from New York with their accents. And they started to pick out features of what the, the difference in what New York City looked like and what Middle Tennessee looks like. And the, the, they could tell a big difference. That's kind of like we're going to do today. Not walk around in the minutiae or details of the book, but to kind of get an idea like a flyover of of what's happening here in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. We can see some features of it and draw some things together through these weeks we've been looking at week to week. So any study of, uh, of 1 Corinthians or 2 for that matter, we need to know a little bit about the city. So remember the very first week, weeks ago, Jeff introduced it. That if you're going to understand 1 Corinthians, you need to understand the city of Corinth. And I remember it's this very populated city. It's a commerce center. Lots of business goes on. Lots of people passing through. Lots of people live there. And it became known for uh, really just depravity and one of those great old-timey words, debauchery. Right? It just became known for, for just everything that is carnal and that is worldly. Corinthians was no, the city of Corinth was known for that. As a matter of fact, to Corinthianize, it, be, it became like a verb. Like to Corinthianize meant to, to party and to be in, in all kinds of craziness. So up above the city... About 2,000 feet in elevation, there was a a place called the Acropolis. That literally means a high city. And it rose above the city, and it was used for defense, to defend the city from attackers and for worship. And remember, uh, Jeff telling us the most prominent edifice up there was this temple to Aphrodite, who's the Greek god of love. So they had over 1,000 temple prostitutes that would come into the city, uh, and and people would go up there to quote-unquote worship. And so this city was like Vegas and New York and L.A. and all the things we talk think about as being, you know, party city. That was Corinth. And so the problem had ro- risen in the church that the church in Corinth had begun to reflect the culture more than the culture reflecting the church. And so Paul sends this letter to them, 
uh, to outline for them really three things. So what, what you're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians all the way through is kind of a three-step process. Paul describes the problem or answers their questions about the problem. Then he shows them how they're not living according to what the gospel says. This is how you're not living this. And thirdly, he uh, tells them, teaches them how to live, how to kind of think through every area of life uh, through the lens of the gospel. So if we're going to talk about the lens of the gospel, we've got to turn to chapter 15 to begin there, 1 Corinthians 15. We call that series, that's a five-week series, Lynchpin. <clears throat> Remember, the Lynchpin is this thing, this pin that brings everything together. It gets the core. The word itself kind of means uh, essential, the essentials of it. And so chapter 15 forms the essential core of 1 Corinthians. It is the, the gospel itself. <clears throat> writer named Johann Bengel, he wrote in the 18th century. Here's what he said. It is here in verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 15, that we find the most important information on planet Earth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if Bengel said this is the most important information on planet Earth, we better read it. So let's, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now here's the core of the core. Here's the pen of the linchpin. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul says, of everything I write, everything I say, everything I preach, this is the first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then appeared to many people. So as Bengal said, as Paul himself says, this is the most important thing, the linchpin, the essence, the thing that holds all of this together is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that Christ was born, Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again, the, the core of that. So you may wonder, like, okay, why, why is it good news that this man shows up, claims to be God, dies innocently, and uh, rises from the, from the dead. So Paul addresses that. It's a long chapter. He addresses that uh, starting, let's look at verse 19. Paul says in answer to that question, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, on, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then Thumb on over to toward the end of the book, verse 54. Paul says, when the perishable, that which can die in our bodies, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, that which won't die, and the mortal, same word, won't die, puts on, uh, does die, puts on immortality, that which will not, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What Paul is saying here, what's the big deal about Christ coming and doing this? Number one, those first verses we read, this is eternally true. Eternal life is absolutely guaranteed. In the last verses, verses 54 through 58, because this ultimate enemy called death, the scariest entity in all of the universe, because that enemy death has been defeated, uh, your life matters. It's not a waste. Therefore, your labor is not in vain, Paul says. So 
Paul said, this is the most important thing ever, the most important information on planet Earth. How come? Well, because the, the ultimate enemy has been defeated and life matters. It's not a waste. It's not in vain. So I'm going to give you a couple of other references to read further on that, and we won't look those up this morning. But Romans 5, 6 through 11, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 11, uh, we, have, we have a new uh, we have now received reconciliation. We were far from God. And because of what Christ did while I was still dead in sin, I've been brought back together with him and to him and declared righteous. The most important information on planet earth from death to life. And so this morning, this may be brand new to you. You may have wandered in and you may have never heard this before. This good news, what the word really means, good news. Or you may have heard it a million times and for some reason today it kind of clicks like, Wow, okay, this really matters. This really is the most important thing on planet Earth. If that is true for you, please, after the service, come up, see one of us. Love to have conversations with you about that because it, of the importance of it, literally, that is eternal in ramification and eternal in implication. So we'll start every point from here, the next four, with the phrase, the gospel, as you see in your outline. So because of this of first importance, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel, first of all, cultivates unity. And so we call the first section of this verse, uh, chapters one through six, we called it wedge. And what's the opposite of unity is to have something wedged in there. The, the book begins, if you turn back to chapter one, the book begins with some really kind and gracious and wonderful and encouraging words uh, from, uh, from God, from uh, Paul in there. Verse four, Paul says to this church that we described, this church infected by the world, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul starts in this really sick church by telling them these things are true about you who know Christ. You're a mess. I'm going to spend the next 15 chapters talking about what a mess you are. But let me remind you who you are in Christ. And then it turns, uh, verse 10, he starts talking about this, these wedges. And we won't go through them specifically other than to say, there are three wedges Paul talks about in the first six chapters. The first wedge is divisions, factions. They were breaking up into groups. They had three leaders in their church, uh, Peter, Paul, and Apollos. And they had broken into these groups, these individual groups. That's in um, uh, part of chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, and almost all of chapter 3. Paul says, some of you say, well, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Peter. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. And that's like, you know, some, some follow Monty, some follow Jeff, some follow Chad. It'd be crazy. But that's exactly what they were doing. They were breaking into factions around little, the cult of personality. And Paul says, it's driving a wedge between each of you. Like there is one, one that we follow named Jesus. And the second one was sexual immorality. It's chapter five. People were, were uh, saying, you know what, it's just okay. It actually was a case of incest in the church. And uh, they were pretending like it wasn't happening, or they were saying, well, it, it's okay, and it's driving a wedge. And then there was this idea of lawsuits, taking one another to court, trying to get power over one another, being right. And so this thing had, 
had uh, ended up being wedged. By the way, wedges are brought about by one thing. They're brought about by isolation. We say that word up here a lot, isolation. The word uh, almost defines itself. It comes from a French word called isolé. It just means to put on an island. And so people were walking around on their island, being the king of their own little domain, gathering others that saw it the same way they did. And little islands had shown up in the church around these three main things. They were saying, you know, my group, my body, so not my business, what's going on over here. And Paul says, yes, it is. It is your business, what goes on in the church of Jesus Christ. If, if I say, well, his body is his, this guy in the church, if his body's his, then mine is mine. And you don't say what I do with mine. I don't say what you do with yours. Factions. And Paul says, yes, we do. We are accountable to one another. And then my argument or my position in in lawsuits. So they were breaking up into groups of me and mine, my group, my body, my argument, my position, my power. Paul says, you're driving a wedge into the heart of the church. He gives an antidote for that, this this self-sufficiency that had arisen. People had become self-sufficient saying, I'm not part of anything bigger than me. That's what isolation does. Isolation says, I'm the king of my own island and, and I have my way in my way. Verse 26 of chapter one. Listen to what Paul says to them. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Don't miss that. Paul says three times, God chose. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. It's not self-sufficiency, Paul's saying. It's not your ability to be the king of your own island. This is the grace of God. God chose you at the church of Jesus Christ. God chose you to be the bearer of the gospel in a culture. Uh, One writer put it this way, God's choice, this is verse uh, 26, God's choice defied the logic, the power, and the wisdom of the world. So self-sufficiency and driving wedges in the church uh, had formed wedges between them in these three forms at least. And Paul says the gospel, the linchpin, the truth of what Christ has done, says that we are to cultivate unity. Off islands of isolation, in this together for the, for the good of the, of the gospel and of the body. So wedge. And next section we went to was called Greener. <clears throat> greener, and, and thinking about Greener, it's just one chapter, chapter seven, talked about Greener. It anchors identity. The gospel anchors identity. It cultivates unity, and it anchors identity. So this section moves from uh, in chapter, of, cha- yeah, chapter one, verse 11. It said that Chloe's people had re- reported these problems. In chapter seven, there's a turn And the church had written to him about some problems they saw coming up, some questions they had. So we've we've talked about this before in here that that we're born with two really big needs and one is the need to belong. Sociologists call it the need for affiliation. We humans need to know that we belong to someone, we belong to something. Uh, We love to be affiliated. And listen, I'm just admit, I'm one of them. Grown men wear Titans jerseys. In my case, Cowboys jerseys, right? Like we want to be affiliated with something outside of us. And so the church is the ultimate affiliation for the body of Christ. We have a desire to belong, 
to be accepted for who we are, and we have a desire for significance, a need to be appreciated, a need to be seen, a need to be heard. And so the church had gotten this mistaken idea that to, to belong and to matter or to belong and to be significant was about marital status. So chapter 7, Paul is saying, look, here's, here are the principles that I teach in the churches about marriage. And so they were taking it that, you know, your marital status had everything to do with what your identity was. So there's really embedded in here in kind of the middle part of this whole chapter on marriage. There's a, a thing that Paul, Paul points out. There are three things, three things this church needed to deal with. The first one's in uh, verses 17 through 22, chapter 7. Verse 17, only let the pers each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. He goes on to give some other examples. Remain condition when he was called. The first thing Paul says you've got to deal with, first thing to deal with this whole idea of identity, the anchor of Paul, you've got to deal with this myth that says a big change in my life will make my life complete. If I could just be married, if I could just be not married, like you heard the example you know, about the flies, like the, the flies inside won't out, the flies outside won't in. <laughs> Paul's saying, listen, your, your status of marriage is not the question. Right, so deal with this myth that says if I make a big change, if, something, if I just do something big, then life's really going to be complete then. That doesn't make, mean don't make big changes. It means the myth that the big change will make my life complete is false, Paul said. Deal with who you are, where you are. And the second one, verse 23, Paul says you were bought with a price. Do not become bond servants of men. The second thing to deal with in identity is dealing with people-pleasing. Scripture calls it the fear of man and make a shameless plug. We have a ministry here called Regeneration, and we deal with that a whole lot in this room, Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. I don't have any shame about it, and it's a plug, shameless plug. <laughs> 7, 7 p.m. in here every Tuesday night, Regeneration, a lot of what gets talked about in these small groups of chairs is how scary it is to have an identity with other people and let them have theirs too without saying what I think you want me to say or doing what I think you need, want me to do so you can be okay with me, so therefore I can be okay. Paul says, verse 23, you're bought with a price. Don't sell out as a slave to men. So deal with the myth that a big change will make life complete. Deal with people pleasing. And then verse 24, so brothers and, and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. The, the phrase there, with God, means to continue to be present, to be held, to be kept, or continually. And we also deal with this at Regeneration, by the way. This has everything to do with deal with what blocks you from intimacy with your heavenly Father. Deal with what is so scary about trusting God as you trust a father. Deal with your story, deal with your past, deal with your present. Deal with that thing that keeps you from, being in, from staying, from being continually present with him. So Paul says, marriage, very important. Singleness, very important. The issue is identity. Who are you? Who do you belong to? Deal with something changing, making your life complete. Deal with people pleasing and deal with what blocks you from intimacy with him. These Corinthians had this idea that identity is found outside of myself and marriage or location or whatever. 
Paul says, no, it's, a, it's an inside deal. It's an inside work of the Spirit. So Paul said, repeats the theme over and over. You'll see it all through 1 Corinthians. Live in how he has created you where he has placed you. So it anchors identity. And third section was a section called dethroned. Um, the gospel necessitates humility. The word necessitate there means to compel or to oblige or to force. So the gospel, the truth of chapter 15, forces us or compels us or obliges us to live a life uh, of humility, to, be, to dethrone the ego. There's an old saying in recovery circles that ego means easing God out of my life. I have an ego where I ease God out and I slowly take over. Now, I'm not really taking over. That's a myth too. But I have this foolish idea that if I ease him out, I can take over and do a better job of my life than he can. And so Paul says, through the truth of chapter 15, that necessitates humility. Let me read you. This is good old, good old Webster's Dictionary. Humility. A deep sense of one's moral littleness. A deep sense of one's moral littleness. That's not talking about toxic shame. It's not talking about humiliation. It says humility is simply recognizing that I am capable of doing great harm to other people. I'm capable of doing that. Humility says I'm moral. I'm as little as everyone else. I dare not look at somebody else and say I would never do that. I would never do that. I've said that too many times. I think every single time I've been caught, yes, I would uh, do that. So I want you to keep in mind three words as we look through chapters 8 through 10. Humility, we just defined, consciousness, and conscience. I can't help you with consciousness. I had spell check and do your best and check it at, at home, consciousness. So humility. Chapter 8, Paul talks about consciousness. Here's what consciousness is. It's just remembering where you came from. We won't read the whole passage, but chapter 8, uh, Paul talks about food being offered to idols, what these other people were doing. And Paul talks about we have a different knowledge. We've been called into something else. We've been taught uh, by the Scriptures. We've been taught by teachers. And Paul said, verse 7, verse 7 says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some... Through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul is saying, remember where you came from. Not everyone has the advantages that y'all have had, Corinthian church. You come from somewhere, and so do they. So humility has to do with being conscious that there are other people in the world. That there are other people who don't come from where you come from or from where I come from, having a consciousness of that. And then verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul saying, I will remember where I come from. And if me doing something that is acceptable, if that causes someone out here, a weaker brother or sister as he calls, if that causes someone to stumble, I just won't do it. And in a world in Corinth and Tennessee and across the globe that says, me, 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 my, 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 I, I do what I want when I want. Uh, that's revolutionary uh, news. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, it matters what you do. There's a world watching, and we'll see that more in just a minute. So verse eight, uh, excuse me, chapter 8 has everything to do with consciousness. Paul says, remember where you came from. 
you've gotten a knowledge informed by what we now know as chapter 15, informed by the gospel, know that you are living in a bigger cultural context as you are salt and light, as Matthew mentions. Chapter 9, Paul goes through a personal example. Paul says, yeah, I'm uh, I'm talking about how I'm not going to do anything that causes a brother to stumble that I can catch. In chapter 9, he talks about his own personal example of that. The very end of that chapter, Paul says uh, an umbrella statement, verse 23, chapter 9. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. In verse 24, Monty took us through this, this passage several weeks ago. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Jerry Bridges calls that dependent discipline. Paul's in personal example from my life. This is what I do. There's a writer, a blogger, actually named Tim Chalice, a Canadian blogger, uh, one of the most well-known, widely read bloggers out there. He was writing about this subject, and he, if you've seen this picture, he's thin as he can be anyway. So he had this goal. He wanted to get down to 10% body fat. Like That isn't even a fantasy for me, but we want to get down to 10% body fat. And he got down to 13% body fat, and then he stopped. Here's what he wrote. I feel a deep desire, like body fat, I feel a deep desire to be godly. But when I really search my heart and examine my life, I see that I'd like to have the end without the means. I want to have what truly godly people have, but I don't want to do what they do. I want their godliness without their discipline, their fellowship with God without their commitment to God. I want to be really godly, but not as much as I want to be kind of godly. I want the 10%, but not quite as much as I want the 13%. I want to achieve the goal a little bit less than I want to put in the effort necessary to have it. My question for me and for you is, am I meeting desire with discipline? And then the great J.I. Packer theologian, he said this. He said, the motto of the Christian life ought not be let go and let God. The motto of the Christian life needs to be trust God and get going. (laughs) Is that great? We're not talking about effort. Paul's not talking about effort. J.I. Packer's not talking about effort. What Paul is talking about here is saying uh, we live a life in a culture and it doesn't happen through osmosis or just passive collection of goodness. Like I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to get better and better, gooder and gooder, every hour of every day. It's about passion. We've talked about that word up here a good bit too. Passion is simply dealing with pain for something that is greater than the pain. It's what Paul's talking about, what an athlete does. We're able to treat many, many athletes through the years and they will tell you it's real, real, real physically painful, but to them it's worth it to stay in the league they're in to play the game they love. And Paul is simply saying, giving the same example from the Olympics uh, here, is saying uh, a real act of humility is dealing with the pain of godly disciplines to, to continue to remind myself I need to be in play, this place called humility because the gospel, chapter 15, this linchpin, the most important information on planet earth compels me to live that way. And then chapter 10 has to do with this idea of, of conscience. Chapter 8, is, a, is a, and remember the umbrella is humility. Chapter 8 is consciousness 
I'm conscious that I live in a bigger context. Chapter 9 is Paul's example. And then chapter 10 has to do with this thing called conscience. Conscience is defined like this. It's a soul, a soul-directed uh, thing, a soul as an entity uh, that distinguishes between what is morally good and what is morally bad. So it distinguishes between good and bad, and then it prompts the person to do the good and to shun the bad. That's what a conscience does. And so the people in, in Corinth, the lost, lost um, society around them, they didn't have any idea about the Holy Spirit informing that conscience. They just lived and did what everyone to do, as Paul goes through over and over. They had lost that. And Paul is saying, listen, you have a conscience coming out of a consciousness of other people and living with the godly discipline of living like an athlete. And yours is informed by the Holy Spirit that lives in you. So in chapter 10, he gives an example from their own history uh, about the, uh, the people coming out of the exodus, coming out of bondage and continuing to live in sin, to live in open rebellion to God. And he writes, uh, verses 11 and 12, Now these things happened to them. This is on the heels of them, uh, God putting them 40 years of wandering. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is saying, pay attention. Pay attention to history. Paul is obviously, we're going to talk about in just a second, Paul is, is a, a scholar around what we now call the Old Testament. Paul knows it A to Z, backward and forward, knows everything about it. He's saying, look, we have a history that's back here in this book that is all about rebellion. It's all about a lack of consciousness, all about an insensitivity to the Holy Spirit in the conscience. We have a history of that. And guess what, Corinthian church? This was made a record, among other things, to remind you of what happens when we human beings take it into our own hands. So Paul's saying this is a, a big reminder to us. And then Paul really gets down to the kind of the crux of things at the very end of this chapter of chapter 10 where he's talking about conscience. Here's what he says. Verse 31. Big summary statement. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And that is a huge statement there. They may be saved. The word glory, by the way, means opinion or estimate. When the word glory is used in the New Testament, every single time, it's about a good opinion that results in praise and honor. So glory says, have an opinion of this person or this thing, and it results in, in, in praise and honor. I had an old mentor one time that said, to glorify something means to advertise. And so where Paul says, I'm walking in the world. We, the Corinthian church is walking in the world. And how we live advertises our true opinion of God. How we walk in the world advertises, this is what I think of God with our subject matter, with our language, with our way of life, with our attitude, with how conscious we are of other people and how conscious we are of our call. And Paul says, the fullest expression of living in humility, Paul says, it's not my rights, it's not what my privilege, here's what it is, that they may be saved. Paul said, that's what I do this for. 
I let my opinion of who God is known to glorify him in all that I do, eating, drinking, living, sleeping, talking, traveling, whatever it is I do, I do it because I know a world is watching. There's a lost world out there, um, and I do it so that some may be saved. And so Paul says, uh, yes, the, 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 the dethroning of the ego necessitates, the gospel necessitates humility. The next section we call harmony. And the gospel contextualizes community. There's one big destroyer of harmony. That's a thing called pride. And where humility is an understanding of moral littleness, pride is a presumption of moral bigness. I know best, I do best, I've got my own plan, I'm better. And so this whole territory, four chapters, 11 through 14, was about harmony, what, what God desires for the church to have. And chapter 11 uh, was about when they meet for the Lord's Supper, a time to celebrate what God has done, to remember that I was, in Romans 5, I was still weak in my sin. I was dead in my trespasses, and he came and did something about it. He delivered me from the dominion of darkness, as Colossians says. And when Paul says, you gather for mealtime, and it's every man for himself. And people come and gorge, and they take from other people, and there's no harmony whatsoever in that. And then in 12, he talks about the worship gathering. We spent several weeks on Chapter 12, Paul says in the beginning, chapter 12, concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. And then he goes through and says, look, there are all kinds of gifts given to, to people. And I want you to notice, listen for the words of harmony that he, that he uses here uh, in 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, same Lord. Varieties of activities, same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All through chapter 12, Paul's talking about harmony, how we do this thing together for the common good. So listen, the, the idea that each person brings diff, kind of different gifts to a mission is not novel. We know that. People bring different giftings to different endeavors that we do as a team or as a body or as an organization or certainly as a church. But Here's what, here's what pride does. Pride has a way of translating the word different to meaning better or worse. And sets, sets up a comparison game. Uh, I have, you know, we've talked about up here about being on the ladder. Pride sets up not me looking at me and my giftedness, what God has given me to contribute to harmony. I don't look at him. Pride sets me up to look at you and to compare me with you. And we, I put us both on a ladder, and so my eye is not on God. My eye is not on my own life. Who's my eye on? My eye is on you. And if you're above me on the ladder, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get above you. And if you're below me on the ladder, I'm going to do everything I can do to judge you for being down there because you're so much worse than me. Right, it's a setup. It's a comparison game. So Paul makes it clear that uh, each member contributes to the welfare of the common good. And uh, My work takes me into a contact with a lot of physicians day in and day out. Here's what physicians say. We're only really, truly, healthily, fully alive when everything is working together, right? Like you can, um, you can have a really, 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 really healthy set of lungs, but if your arm is broken, your lung health, it doesn't matter too much, right? So uh, this whole idea of a, of a uh, comparison between the body, the human body, and the, and the church body is throughout 1 Corinthians and reminds me of, uh, you know, like the appendix, now, after a successful career at Google State University, went to medical school at WebMD University. You probably all heard of that school. Uh, highly educated. 
Uh, here's what WebMD says. WebMD says the appendix is a four-inch tube attached to the first part of your large intestine. Its exact function is unclear. <laughs> we don't have any idea. We're from Harvard, and we don't have any idea. What does that thing do? And would it be crazy if the appendix kind of said, you know what I wish? wish I was a heart. I wish I wasn't flopping around down here somewhere in the intestine and just, you know, being an appendix. I would be a really great heart. I would beat like crazy. I would be really, you know, healthy and good. If I was a heart, I would really be something. What, I'm an appendix. And, and so, you know what? I'm not a heart. What if I just ruptured? That'd mess everything up. I just rupture, right? <laughs> what if the appendix did that? I mean, you know, if a person having an appendicitis attack, that's, it doesn't matter how healthy my heart, lungs, or liver are, get this thing out, right? And Paul's saying there's a bunch of appendices, plural, appendices, in the church, doing the comparison game, there are a lot of hearts in the church looking down on the appendices and saying who's better and who's worse. And Paul is saying, look, pride has a mission to disintegrate the body of Christ, to put the appendix up against the heart and look down on one another, be jealous of one another, and get in complete disharmony rather than living in the context of, of community. And so comparison jealousy, secrets, limelight seeking, all of those things that happen in the body, Paul is saying that is creating disharmony. That is not cultivating community in this incredibly important thing we're doing called the church. So what's happening is Paul is uh, introducing the antidote to pride. It's where Kevin talked about this morning. It's a thing called love. Paul said it's the more excellent way. It's the word huper bole. Or we get our word hyperbole. It means a throwing beyond excellence, preeminence. It means beyond measure. Paul is saying, I'm going to introduce something to you that is the antidote. It is the antithesis to pride and disharmony. It's called love. And it runs throughout. And in chapter 13, here's what Paul's making plain. Love is not some abstract idea. Love is not something that's achieved like an object. Love is a way of living. Love is a way of living in the body. It is a movement into something that never ends. Two times in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says love never ends. It has no end. It's always moving, another move, another gesture, another, another direction toward connection. There's absolutely no end to it. As Monty mentioned last week, um, it's, it undergirds the last words of the book, grace and mercy be multiplied through the love exhibited to us on the cross. So Paul said, listen, you want harmony? Let me introduce you to harmony. So the more excellent way beyond measure is called loving one another. So then uh, it flows right into this beautiful chapter 15, the linchpin. And then Paul says, here's the, here's the, here's the end, the coda, as we called it, chapter 16. Like we said before, Paul's not ranting. Paul's not making a post. Uh, Paul is saying this is the ending. It's almost as if Paul's looking back over the landscape of his letter, the previous 15 chapters, and he's giving them kind of a flyover finish. It's real simple. You may remember, I think it was just three weeks ago, uh, Monty said, you know, you would think after the bigness of chapter 15, man, 16 would be the big finish. Like, wow, come out of 15 to be lights and camera and action and smoke. And what it ends up being is Paul says, look, coming out of the gospel, the truth of the gospel it's something lived out every single day. How do you handle your money? How do you handle your daily struggle and spiritual warfare? What is your real worldview? How are you serving with humility? 
What's your spiritual hunger? How are you dealing with opposition? A daily walk. So the conclusion of this whole book, Paul says, yes, the linchpin, the culmination, the, the apex, chapter 15, moves right into daily walk. How are you living your life as a follower of Christ? So chapter 16 is kind of Paul's so what, that will move us into our so what. So what's really pretty simple after finishing a book like 1 Corinthians. Let me ask you to, to pay attention to some things as we kind of lead into this, um, into our so what today, our, our final exam that will be lived out every minute and every day as we go forward. Let me ask you, consider four things. Are you cultivating unity? Are you living in isolation and self-sufficiency? Are you create, cultivating unity or are you creating wedges? And where is your identity anchored? Is it anchored in your status in life? Is it anchored in your identity in him? And what's your level of awareness of others and the culture we live in? And and to what extent are you listening to a, a gospel-informed conscience about how to live among people in humility? And how are you contributing or not contributing to living in harmony in the body? And then lastly, how is your coda? How is your conclusion? How is your daily walk shaping up? Where are places that you need to look in consideration of what Paul has shared with us in this book? So take a few moments and consider those.